You are listening to the Bethel Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Bethel Church in Yale, South Dakota. Exodus chapter 11, if you would uh, stand with me as we honor the, the reading of Scripture together. Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor of silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man, Moses, was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout the land of Egypt, such as has never been, nor will ever be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, neither man nor beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these, your servants, will come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you, and after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning, and we come to a a text that is, is difficult in some ways. It deals with children dying. And it's easy to to read through these things and approach them flippantly. Like they're telling us a story, a fable that's not real to teach a, a moral lesson. But Lord, we recognize that the judgment is real. It happened, and it is certain. Lord, I pray that that you would use your word. Lord, I I pray that you would use it in in ways in our our hearts that we can't imagine. May it point to and and glorify Jesus, who is our our Redeemer, who frees us from this this curse and the the penalty of, of sin. Lord, we pray that we would be people who take our sin seriously. 
Lord, lead us to repentance. May we be people who are, who are not satisfied living the way we have. Lord, may we turn to you. Lord, we pray that you would bless your word this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It took me a little while to, to figure out how I was going to handle this last plague. In fact, if you know the, the text here, there's a lot more. We just read the portion where it was threatened, not even where it was what happened. We'll get into that a little bit later here, but this last plague, it really stands on its own in a lot of ways. For instance, we have already said that there was an order to the plagues. There was three sets of three, one, four, and seven, right? Moses go to Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh early in the morning when he's out by the, the water. The second plague in each set, Moses and Aaron go again to Pharaoh. This time, they go to him in the, the palace in his official capacity as Pharaoh. And then in the third set, so three, six, and nine, there's no warning. They just happen. Now, when I was talking about the, the ninth plague last week, the darkness, I said something uh, like this. I said it was, the, it was kind of a final nail in, a, in the coffin, so to speak. Of course, we know that there's a, another plague. But at the same time, it was this plague that, that ended the three sets of three. It was, uh, it was, it was a dagger. There's no way around that. It showed the impotence of the so-called gods of Egypt in a way that the other plagues did not. And as we saw, it riled up Pharaoh. Some say the darkness is anticlimactic. Darkness isn't that big a deal. But if that is the case, why was Pharaoh in such a mood to compromise and let them go to worship? Well... Let the men go anyway, because the greater gods of Egypt was being uh, attacked along with the other gods. The sun was so important in Egypt, and, and these, they, they wanted it back. They wanted to, to take the focus off the, the ineptness of Egypt's gods, and, and the only way to do this was to get light back, get the sun back. This plague sent a message, somewhat of a, a final blow. But it wasn't the final blow, was it? There was something else. And the something else is not part of the, the, the regular set. It's, a, it's, it's another plague that, that stands on its own. It, it is the, the final plague that ends the plagues. And it ends the plague in more ways than one because of what it points to. I, I said at the, at the onset here, it took me a bit to, to figure out how I was going to handle this. Here, here's the thing, this last plague, and, and we, will, we will see this here. It, it's called here a, a plague, and I think that's very interesting. Usually these are, are signs, right? We, we talked about this. They're, they're signs demonstrating a purpose, but here it is a plague. Remember the word plague is, is a strike or a, a blow, and here that word is used. It, it's a plague. 
And there's a lot of ramification here. Couple that with the fact that, that what happens here is going to be marked as the, the centerpiece of a, the life of an Israelite. It will define who they are as a, a people and how they worship and who they worship. And if we were walking through the book of Exodus, we would dive into a lot more of that. We would spend a, a lot of time on that. But our purpose here is to talk about uh, these plagues that you should know. That, that's the title of the, the short series. Therefore, uh, we're going to pretty much just deal with, with chapter 10, or I mean chapter 11. We'll, we'll draw some more from what comes later, of course. But our, our primary focus is going to be that 11th chapter. And what we have here is this, this final blow or plague that is threatened. It's, it's equivalent to the others in some respects. It's, there's some things that are, that are the same, but at the others, it's just totally different. You, you see some of the, the same truths, but then it's just, it's just different. As I was preparing for this message, I decided to just uh, search the 10th plague in my podcast app and just see what some others were saying about it. I, I found this, this one podcast, I don't remember the, the name of it, but it was something about people that believe in the Bible are drunk or something like that. It was, it was obviously not a Christian podcast and I knew that walking into it and I just wanted to see what, what, do they, what would they say? And it was this entire podcast that was dedicated to these two people's disdain of the Bible. Of course, this, this one particular episode was on the plagues, and it was, it was so difficult to get past all the, the jeering and the joking about the so-called stupidity of God. But these, these, these people that were uh, leading this, this episode, they, they called themselves former evangelicals. One said he was a, uh, used to be a pastor. And these should have should have known better, I would think. It fascinated me that a couple people like this could have had this exposure to the Christian faith. And then as they got older, they not only leave the faith, they not only just don't embrace it anymore, but these are actively engaged in mocking it week after week. I would think that as part of the, the preparation for this particular episode, they would have read through the account of the, the ten plagues. Perhaps they would have uh, read those who, who believed the account. And they would have tried to, to point out errors. Well, these hosts on the podcast made it clear that they thought that the God of Israel was just grasping at straws in how he handled the situation of uh, the slavery of the Hebrews. But, but not only was he uh, late getting to the game, he, he let them suffer for hundreds of years. To them, God uh, tried one thing after another. After he's late to the game, he, he tries one plague. That doesn't work. So he, he tries another. It, it didn't work. They, they painted him as, as not being very intelligent and suggesting that if he were truly all-powerful, he would have just snapped his fingers and these would have been free. Or better yet, if he was all-powerful and he was good and he was the God that the Bible explains him to be, he would have not let his people fall into slavery in the first place. They mocked the narrative. They mocked the God behind the narrative. They ridiculed everyone who believed any word of it. I couldn't help that 
as I was uh, listening to this, as much of it as I, I could stomach, I, I couldn't get through the whole thing. But these people's hearts, to me, resembled pharaohs. They, they were hard. They were not uh, concerned with, with truth. They, they wanted to, to mock him. They wanted to elevate uh, themselves and their own. They wanted to make themselves look, look smart and, and right. And I, and I couldn't see for the life of me how these could have been exposed to the truth at one time, how they've read through this and not wondered if they, like Pharaoh, were just waiting until one day that the God in which they mocked would bring them down. That that God that they spent so much time and effort ridiculing would one day visit them in judgment. So I got thinking, what are some things that these, these podcasters, what are some of these things that, that they and that we should understand about God from this final plague? How, how, what, what, are, what is it really saying about this God? There's a couple things here that, that I think that are, that are pretty obvious that, that we ought to, to spend some time thinking through as we read through this. The, the first thing is this. And that is that, that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. God's sovereignty is so clear in all of this. It shouldn't be a surprise to, to most of us. God's sovereignty hasn't been hidden in our study. It, it isn't really a debatable thing. We, we've seen it over and over and over. And this is the fact that God is simply in control of all things. Get this, the Bible drips with this doctrine. It's on every single page of the Bible. God is in complete control of all things. It's almost comical to read those who would argue against God's sovereignty, which there are not many serious Christians that would do that. But these that do pick a, a verse out here or there that, that seems to make God sound like he's, he's actually not in control. But to get there, they have to ignore a lot of the other texts that clearly demonstrates God's sovereignty. Just look at chapter 11 here. The Lord said to Moses, yet one more plague. There's not one coming later. This is it. I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the voice who was of one who is in complete control, isn't it? One more. That's it. Afterward, he will let you go from here. That's, that's, that's the voice of one in control of all things talking, isn't it? There's no question. I'm going to do one more thing and he's going to release you. I mean, just notice the way the language shifts. God is, I will. And then Pharaoh will. He will let you go. There's no if. There's no asking Pharaoh. There's no, if you refuse to do this, then I will release this plague. There's no options anymore. It's the voice of a God that is completely in control. There's one more plague. In verse 4 we read, 
About midnight I will go in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt will die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the hand of the, the hand mill, and all of the, the firstborn of the cattle. This is what is going to happen. This is the time it's going to happen. Not tomorrow, but tonight, right around midnight. It's going to happen because I'm going to go there and I'm going to make it happen. This is the voice of one who is in complete control of all things. Notice the shift. This is a blow. This is a plague. God isn't messing around. He's not showing signs. He's not demonstrating his power anymore. This is judgment. This is a blow. This is a strike. This is God accomplishing the purpose that God set out to accomplish. Notice something else, and this is verse 4. This will happen at midnight. It's more than the firstborn dying. But the cause for these deaths is that the Lord himself will go out in the midst of Egypt. And when he does... Something will happen. Every firstborn loses their life. And as you see later, there is not a house in Egypt where one person wasn't dead. I, I think one of the, the greatest mistakes that, that we make when we come to this text, or uh, of course other places in the Bible, but this text in, in particular, is that is that we, we don't see or recognize that this is the voice of a, a God that is in complete control and we, and we try to make it sound like there, there's some contest that's going on here. This contest between the, the God of the, the Hebrews, the, the Israelites, and, and Pharaoh. God uh, strikes a blow, he does a sign, Pharaoh uh, strikes back in, in that he refuses God says, do this or else I'm going to do this plague. I'm going to turn the, the water into blood. And, and Pharaoh says, uh, no way. And there's this, this contest, right? That, that God is just there trying to, to move Pharaoh, but he's unable to, to move him. So he just steps things up a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more until finally he moves Pharaoh. Until God has enough. And then in this anger and retaliation, God says, okay, I got one more and I'm going to do it. I'm going to do everything I got. I'm going to pour everything I got into this one thing that sure enough is going to get him. I'm going to take his firstborn son. And the back and forth eventually ends because God is so harsh. But that isn't how this is portrayed in Scripture at all. God said always what he was going to do, and he was going to do this thing in order that people would see that there was none like him. All of this is a demonstration, both on one side to the Egyptians and the other sides to those who he is redeeming. God's power is on display in this whole process. And the whole process, as we have seen, is extremely important because God is, is taking out the, the gods of Egypt, what they put their hope and their trust in. God is just dismantling this brick by brick. Their whole system, their whole worldview is crumbling down in the fact that there are ten plagues. This is a, a sovereign God who is completely in control of everything, dismantling a religion of another country in order to redeem the people that they are holding captive to their rebellion. God is 
allowing them to see that God, the Israelites, that God redeemed them. And he's allowing them to see that the lengths that he is going to go to to set them free in order that they will be able to worship him freely. I'll say more about this later, but I, I want you to just notice here that this wasn't a contest. There was no contest here. This was an almighty God displaying his power, putting himself on center stage for the world to see. It was a sovereign God doing what he was going to do, and he wanted people to see it so that he would receive the glory. Go back to chapter 4. So this is after the burning bush. Moses is returning to Egypt to go to Pharaoh. God is giving him directions here. Notice verse 22. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Let my firstborn son or I'll kill yours. And we paint God as this one who is at the end of his rope and does this thing as a last resort. God knew all along. He's not going to let him go. The price for the redemption of God's firstborn son Israel is the firstborn son of Egypt, of the Pharaoh. Let me ask you this. Did God, through Moses, go to Pharaoh and demand that he he let Israel go? Did he ask just once? He asked over and over. He offered offered every opportunity for Pharaoh to comply with God's command, but over and over, Pharaoh refused. So what's going to happen? The death of the firstborn. Not only Pharaoh's, but all of them. At the end here, I'm going to get to this, but I'm going to ask, is this moral on God's part? We'll get there, but for now, I want you to see God is in complete control, God's sovereignty. Start to finish. We see God that is in complete control, not a clumsy God, not a God who is grasping at straws, but a God who is doing what God does. He's moving heaven and earth and he's going to to redeem his people. There's no question about this. This was God's plan. This was his purpose from the very beginning. I'm going to step in this situation and I'm going to free these people. And this is the way I'm going to do it. I'm going to put myself on display so that the people that I'm redeeming know who it is that has redeemed them. So God's sovereignty, we see it clearly. Another thing that in in these verses that these podcasters and and we should really see and, and glean from this whole thing is the certainty of God's judgment. Again, that this whole portion of scripture that we've been studying leading up to this point is talking about the certainty of judgment. Judgment is coming. That's the whole point of all of this. Over and over, nine times, judgment is coming. You're going to catch a glimpse. 
keep refusing. You're going to know what it's going to feel like. In Exodus 11, it's very clear. God's judgment will come. Pharaoh has refused over and over. And this is how God is going to humble Pharaoh. It's how he will break him ultimately. He's come close, right? Over and over. He's come close to breaking him. Here, Pharaoh is broken. In verse 1, after this plague or blow to Pharaoh, afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. This isn't a, a half-hearted response from Pharaoh. It isn't a trick. It isn't Pharaoh just, just trying to, to get, some, get God to relent because God has already done it. Before, we see God just, just relent, stop it, and I'll give you what you want. And then he hardens his heart and he, and he doesn't get it. This isn't a trick. He drives them out that night. There was a time here in which Pharaoh, he wanted them gone. He didn't just let them go, he wanted them gone. Certainty of judgment is made clear in this. It will happen. Not tomorrow, not some distant time in the future, not something you don't have to worry about, but it's happening tonight. Judgment is certain. And that's how, and I'm going to interject this, but that's how we ought to view judgment. If you're not a believer here, if this is, if, if, if this is something that is not, uh, if this is foreign to, to you, we always think about this. Judgment is tomorrow. We don't have to worry about judgment today. Judgment is something we'll, we'll, we'll take up. We'll get right with God some other time. We can put it off till tomorrow. Here, he's saying judgment is certain. Think about it. Judgment is tonight. It's coming. It's on your doorstep. There's no, if you don't let them go then, it's now. God is coming. He's coming to be in the midst of Egypt and the firstborn will die. I want you to think about this from the perspective of the Egyptians for a moment. The God of the dead was Osiris. His, his name means almighty. He was supposed to be uh, sovereign in complete control. He had an assistant. Osiris' assistant's name was Anubis. And this was the god of the underworld. And he, he supervised the embalming process of the dead. And he also uh, transitioned people to the afterlife. When you died, who takes you into the afterlife? Anubis does. So here's the, the kicker in all of this. Anubis, like so many of the other gods in Egypt, was represented by an animal. In this case, Anubis is represented by a dog, a, a canine. So... Now, God's judgment comes to pass. The firstborn all die at the same time. What Egyptian god was exceedingly busy? Anubis, right? All of these people are transitioning to the afterlife at the same time. But in verse, verse 7, we read, Among the Israelites, there wasn't even a dog barking. Any man or animal. No death in Egypt. Anubis, he wasn't there. You know what he was doing? He was in Egypt. Because all their people dead were dead. Egypt was untouched by death. And this proved that Osiris and Anubis had, had no power. 
But what did it prove to the Egyptians? It proved that the God of the Hebrews had the power over life and death. Again, this point is really made clear when Pharaoh's firstborn son dies. I mean, it wasn't just the son of the most important guy in, in Egypt. He was, not, he was the next in line for the throne. But not only that, he was a successor to the gods. When his father died, he would be the son of Ray. He was, the, he was to be a, a god in the succession of the gods. The God of the Hebrews was striking quite a blow here. Not only is everyone grieving at great loss, but the entire succession of gods in their system, their worldview, is unraveling. And the God of Egypt, the gods of Egypt were incapable of doing anything about it. They couldn't do anything. But even more than this, the life of God's firstborn son Israel remember that's how God put it in chapter 4 his firstborn son Israel the life of God's firstborn son Israel required the death of Pharaoh's firstborn son what was the final factor that humbled and humiliated the heart of Pharaoh was the death of his own son the freedom of Israel required his death. Didn't require the, the waters turning to blood, the death of the cattle, plagues, losing the livelihood. I mean, everything, everything. Egypt was ruined at this point. God could ruin Egypt. Set them into famine for years and years and years. Devastate the country. that's not enough he wouldn't let them go they weren't free but after the death of his son he read this Pharaoh rose up in the night he and all his servants and all the Egyptians and there was a great cry in Egypt for there was not a house where somebody was not dead then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said up go out from among my people you and the people of Israel, go. Serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks, take your herds as you have said, but be gone. I'm just saying I'll let you go. He's saying take it all and get out. And what was required? The life of God's firstborn son. To free, what was required to free God's firstborn son, Israel? The death of Pharaoh's firstborn but understand this, and that is that the life of God's firstborn son, the elect, spiritual Israel, we saw this in the, the book of Romans, that true Israel are those descendants of Abraham by faith, those who put their faith and trust in him. That's true Israel. So the life of God's firstborn elect required the death of God's firstborn Jesus to be free. What frees us? What secures our redemption? Good works? Trying all might, all, trying as your heart? Growing up in a Christian home? Doing good things, acts of service, serve, serving in a soup kitchen? I mean, you can name, it, name them all. 
It's not going to free you. It's not going to redeem you. The only thing that redeems us is the death of God's firstborn son, Jesus. Our redemption, our freedom requires the death of Jesus Christ to free us. Judgment is certain. It's certain for us to get that in here. Judgment for them, it was, it was certain. It was going to happen that night. For us, there will be a judgment. And the only way to be free from that judgment is to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. To trust in what the provision that God has made for us. The lamb that was slain. The blood that covers sins. So that judgment might pass. So, we've gone this far. And I, and I want to ask the, the question here about morality because it, it comes up a lot. Actually, I, I'm getting these questions uh, loosely from Vody Bauckham. Um, he, he took this up too, and I'm going to change him a little bit. But he, he asked the, the question, was God wrong in killing children? I mean, that's, that's quite a question, right? Just that God would do that. You know, we make a lot of being pro-life. We say that we are advocates, of, advocates of, of life of the unborn. And this resonates because children are, for the lack of a better word, innocent victims. But what about God killing children here? Was that right? Was it okay? Was God more, is he... This is a, a charge that a lot of people will level against God here. And a lot of us know, right? We, we know that God must have been right here to do what he was doing. He do what it was just. But we don't understand why. We could spend a really long time here. In fact, in every one of the questions I have, we could spend a, a whole sermon on just of those things. But we're going to spend just a few minutes. It's, I guess, at least just a place to start here in thinking about all of this. Let me just give you several things to keep in mind here as we think about this. Was God right in doing what he did? The first thing we need to realize that Pharaoh chose this. Pharaoh chose it. Just listen to the, the first chapter of, of Exodus. The, the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. This is how Pharaoh humbled people. This was the, the side that he was on. He was the humbler, never the humbled. And here, he's choosing the terms. And God is responding. He killed their children. This is the kind of person he was. We also said earlier that in the fourth chapter, God told him that if he didn't let these people go, then his son would die, but he dismissed this threat of God. He didn't take God seriously. Another thing here that we must keep in mind is that Children always bear the, the consequences of their parents' actions. There, there's no getting around this. A mother drinks alcohol or does drugs while she's pregnant, and there's consequence on the child's life. Sometimes uh, very severe, sometimes it's more subtle. 
a parent leaving a child in a hot car where they go into a store. There's, there's consequences. There's consequences to a parent's love for a child. Proper discipline that comes from that love for a child has consequences. Good consequences. There's, there's bad consequences to the parent's actions. There's, there's good ones. And I think you get the point. But, but couple this with, with something else that we should keep in mind here. And that is that everyone that acted in faith here could have avoided this. Everyone that acted in faith could have avoided this. Yes, these are, are children, and children are bearing the, the, the choice of their parents. If parents would have acted in faith, their children would not have died. Here's something else to keep in mind. It's difficult, but it's true. And that is, there is no one innocent, truly innocent. David recognizes this, that he was a, a sinner from the moment of conception. The fall affects everyone. Listen to, to Romans chapter 5, verse 12. I'll start there. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sin. Notice here that sin enters the world through one man. That man is Adam. In Adam, we are all born sinners and eventually act on that nature that we have as sinners. Let me ask another question. Was God wrong because he punished Egyptians that did not know him? The argument here calls God's morality into question because these people didn't know any better. The answer is, is pretty simple here, and I'll just leave it here, and that is that everyone is accountable to God's moral law. Everyone is accountable to God's moral law. The whole world will be judged in this way at the end of time. God's moral law is based on uh, who he is. Humans don't need to agree to this to be held to responsible to it. We can't say at the end, yes, I'm a liar and a thief, but you can't hold me accountable for those things because I didn't agree to the terms. Some others might question the morality of God here because the Egyptians were held accountable for the actions of a king. It's the king that kept refusing, not the people. He wouldn't let the people go, but the firstborn of every Egyptian family died. So they say God is not moral. Here it's important that we understand an important doctrine, an important truth, and that is what we call federal headship. And it's true. It, it's the way we are saved. It's such a crucial doctrine. Uh, we just read Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Sin enters the world through one man, and therefore all sinned. This is the doctrine of federal headship. Adam, in the Garden of Eden, was the representative or the head of, for all humanity. And when he sinned, he plunged all of his posterity into that same sinfulness. This is why it's a curse, that it's a plague on humanity. Headship, though, it's not a new thing. We see this all the time. Our, our president was elected, hopefully legitimately, to represent the, the people under him. In our states, we, we elect representatives. These are to re represent the people in that state. Or in a district or a larger group. Pastors or, or teachers, heads of households. These are our heads. 
And these are held to a different account because of their position. They're responsible to those who are uh, under their care. Every, you know, do you, you ever wonder why I, I push you a little bit? Not just to, to give you a bunch of moral platitudes from the pulpit, but I, I push, I, I want you to think because I, I care for your soul. And I know that I'm going to be held to a, a higher account. I, I don't want any of you to attend here and miss the gospel for the sake of the law. Or the dues of scripture. I don't just tell you to do this, don't do that. Keep your nose clean. I mean, we keep reading in, in Romans 12 and we come to this. But the gift is not like the trespass. Romans 5. We, we keep, uh, the gift is not like the trespass. For if the, the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Just as we are condemned in Adam, he is our, our head, we're made alive in Christ, who is our federal head, the representative for us. And no matter what memes on the internet might say, paying the penalty for your own sin isn't a feasible option. The bearing the, the weight of God's wrath for eternity doesn't work. But Jesus did that for those who trust him. He paid that penalty. Those who place their faith and trust in him, those who trust in the, the perfect blood of Jesus, who is that perfect sacrificial lamb, that the whole sacrificial system pointed to, it is Him, in Him alone, that there is salvation. You can't do it yourself. You trust in Him alone, who is our head. The sad thing is, is when it comes to countries in our world, there's a lot of suffering that would greatly be avoidable if it were not for the leaders of those countries. In this case, and in many others, the people, though, do have a choice. They can be disobedient to unrighteous leaders. We have examples of this in the Bible in Acts chapter 4. These leaders said that the apostles could not preach the gospel, but they continued to preach the gospel. But think about the people listening. The people that were surrounded on all this. They could have been obedient to the authorities. They could have dismissed the apostles' teaching. They could have went along with those in power. They could have done that and been obedient to them and spent eternity in a devil's hell. Or they could have rebelled, listened to the gospel, embraced it, and spent eternity in heaven. These here were in the same boat. They, they could have rebelled and, and listened to Moses and not Pharaoh. They could have listened to the, the Lord talk through his prophets. They, they could have believed and trusted in the blood of the Lamb on their doorpost. They could have believed that if they did that, the angel of the Lord would have passed over him. Now here's the question. Did any of the Egyptians do that? Did they believe? Did they leave with the Israelites? And the answer to that question is yes. I don't know how many, but just listen to Exodus chapter 12, verse 38. When speaking about the Exodus, we read that, that after the Israelites plundered the Egyptians, a question that we're not going to get to because of time, but an interesting one. But after that, we read this starting in verse 37. The Israelites journey from Ramses to Sukkoth. There were about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. 
Many other people went up with them. Israelites, 600,000 men, plus women and children, and other people. Who in the world are the other people that weren't Israelites? We're left to conclude that they're Egyptians that believed and left with them. In Joshua chapter 8, verse 35, we read that there was not a word that Moses commanded that Joshua didn't read to the whole assembly of Israel, including to the, the women and the children also, and also the foreigners. I mean, these are the people that are taking the, the land of, of promise. And there's still this, this distinction. Who's going who's to inherit the land that was promised to Israel? Israel? Israeli men? Women? Children? And foreigners who are with them? It's a good chance that these were Egyptians that rebelled against Pharaoh and didn't follow his lead who listened to the voice of God and believed that their only hope in escaping the coming wrath of God was to hide themselves under the blood of the Lamb. As we transition to the Lord's table, let me read from Exodus chapter 12, and I'll start in verse 21. Then Moses called the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourself according to the, your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it into the blood that is in the, the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out the door until it is morning for the Lord will pass through and strike the Egyptians. And when he sees blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter into your house and strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. The people bowed their heads then and worshipped. I want you to just think about this and back up in verse 24. There, there's a moment there where we're told that you should observe this right as a statute for year and your sons forever. That's a curious statute because we don't. They did it in the Old Testament. We talked about this last week a little bit, but it says that, that we're to do it forever. Does that mean that we should be celebrating the feast of the Passover, that we should, we should be killing a, a Passover lamb? Look with me briefly at 1 Corinthians 5. Let me just start in verse 7. Clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us there celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So here we have something important. Jesus changes everything. He's the Passover lamb. We do not slaughter him anew somehow, but we remember what he has done for us. We look back on his sacrifice. This is what Jesus was getting at when he instituted the Lord's Supper. In Matthew chapter 26, verse, 20, verse 20, uh, 17, we read that it was the, the first day of the unleavened bread, and the disciples asked Jesus where they would prepare the Passover, and Jesus gave them directions. And as they're eating, Jesus takes the bread, and he blesses it, and he breaks it, and he gives it to the disciples. Of course, this was unleavened bread, and it signified what the Israelites had that night that they left because they couldn't 
uh, wait for it to, to rise. They had to, to leave. This is why it was the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. Then Jesus does something different. He tells them that the bread is his body. Of course, Jesus is instituting something new here. Jesus was making the Passover all about himself. The bread now was a representation of Jesus' body that was broken for sinners. Then Jesus turns to the wine and he tells them uh, to drink it for it is the blood of the, the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. In other words, Jesus' blood, his death was a fulfillment of covenant promises. This is what we call the, the new covenant that Christ took it upon himself to bear the weight of sin and wrath for everyone that would place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Here's my point. And that is as we come to the Lord's table, we look at our Passover lamb. The one who has been slain for us. The one who freed us from the curse of sin and death forever. When we trust in him, the angel of, of death passes over us because Jesus died for us. He's the one in whom we have forgiveness of sins. We think of how his body was broken for us, how his blood was shed for our sins, how he perfectly fulfilled the requirements of the covenant to keep the moral law that you and I failed. We've fallen short over and over and over, but he died so that we could be free. And then he rose from the dead. He conquered death forever so that we might live forever with him. My friends, think about this when you come to the Lord's table today. Think about these words, guilt, grace, and gratitude. Think about the guilt of sin that we should have been held accountable for, that should have been put on us, but was paid in full by Christ. That is grace. And our response to all of that should be gratitude. Let me pray. And as I do, uh, deacons, would you come up and... Thank you for listening to this sermon resource from BethelMBChurch.org. If you'd like to learn more about Bethel Church or find other resources, please visit our website at BethelMBChurch.org. Bethel Church exists to bring glory to God by promoting the joyful worship of Jesus Christ both here and abroad.